This is Trek FM. Only frequencies open. This is your Trek FM Hyper Channel for Friday, July 4th, 2014. I'm Christopher Jones, and we have two stories for you today. USS Prometheus and Zindi insectoid ship set course for your desk, and John Byrne hints at the future of new visions. First off, though, I'd like to wish a happy 4th of July to all of our listeners in the United States. It's been a long time since I was in the U.S. for this holiday, but I really do miss the chance to eat some great barbecue. I just want to go back down to Tuscaloosa. I need some dreamland. I need some barbecue. Well, I'm going to miss out on it, but I hope everyone else is enjoying the day with your friends and your family and fireworks, of course. So happy 4th of July to everyone there in the States. Now, on to the first story. For Starship lovers, Eagle Moss's official Starship's collection has been like a tall glass of Tranya, sweet and refreshing. Having run through most of the lead ships like the Enterprises and Voyager, as well as the most common enemy vessels like the Klingon Bird of Prey and the Romulan Warbird, the collection is now turning its eyes on the obscure, or often on the obscure, Issue 24 will bring fans the very unique Zindi insectoid ship from Enterprise's third season, while Issue 25 will deliver the USS Prometheus and Tri-Vector Assault Mode, as seen in the Voyager episode, Message in a Bottle. There's no word yet, by the way, on whether a miniature Andy Dick is included. The insectoid ship was designed by John Eaves, who in the magazine shares his original concept drawings and reveals that he was inspired by crab claws. And I can definitely see that when I look at this ship. I've never really thought about it before, but now that he mentions it, yeah, I definitely see that. Also in the magazine, Dan Curry talks about designing the Zindi insectoids themselves. And that's really interesting to me because I have to say that no matter what you think about the Zindi arc, no matter what you think about the third season of Enterprise, the reptilian and the insectoid... Now, the insectoids, of course, were CGI, and the reptilians were makeup. But both of those designs were really interesting to me. I think the reptilian makeup is some of the best makeup that they've done on Star Trek. And the insectoids are interesting because bringing to life a race like that through CGI in Star Trek is something that we're not really used to. And it's something that if Star Trek, if we went back to even the original series, but certainly to TNG, if these shows had been made today, we probably would have seen a lot more of this type of alien on the show. So that's going to be interesting to see as well in the magazine. The Prometheus, as I mentioned, was seen in Message in a Bottle, and it has Tri-Vector Assault Mode. As far as I know, the model itself doesn't come apart. I think it's just one piece. But the ship itself, of course, could split into three parts, which could then take part in the battle, which we actually see in the episode. In the magazine that comes with this ship, you'll also learn more about Rick Sternbach's original concept that split the ship not into three parts, but into five. That would have been very interesting. So I'm looking forward to seeing that as well. Unfortunately for me, it will be a long time before I get my hands on the Zindi insectoid ship or the Prometheus because here in Japan, we are just now on issue four, which is the Klingon bird of prey. 
Right now on my desk as I'm recording this, right in front of me, I've got the 1701 Enterprise refit from the movies. I've got the 1701D, which was the first ship released here in Japan. And I've got the NX-01 Enterprise as well. So I'm looking forward to getting the Klingon Bird of Prey on my desk. It's actually available now. I need to make a trip down to the bookstore and pick that up. And I'm really looking forward to a lot of these other ships. And what I'd like to know from you is which obscure ship do you most want to have on your desk? I've pulled out a few from the collection. Some are more obscure than others, but they're not lead ships and they're not ships that we see frequently. But those that have been done already by Eagle Moss, and I actually should mention here in Japan, even though these ships are done by Eagle Moss, I'm getting them from Diagostini, not Eagle Moss. They are the distributor here in Japan. Just a little factoid there. But the obscure ships that we've seen so far are the USS Thunderchild, which is an Akira-class vessel, which we have seen a number of times in Star Trek, although the Thunderchild is the only ship that actually has a name. And the Thunderchild was seen in first contact in the Battle of Sector 001. Some other ships, the Jem'Hadar Battlecruiser, not really obscure. We see a lot of them, but it's a unique design, and it's very specific to DS9 and the Dominion War storyline. Also, the USS Equinox, which is issue 15. That is, of course, from the Voyager episode, Equinox. Issue 17 is the USS Dauntless. In issue 18, we get the beautiful, unique Bajoran Solar Sailor ship from the DS9 episode Explorers. Issue 19 is the USS Stargazer, which, again, I I don't actually feel like it's obscure just because it was Picard's ship and we heard a good bit about it, but it is one that you don't normally get as a model. Uh, There have been some models of it produced, but I think it's kind of obscure. And then the Crenum Temporal Weapon Ship, which is issue 22. So they're getting into some of the lesser known ships here, and I'd love to know which obscure ship from Star Trek you love and you want to have a model of on your desk, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at cbrianjones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. Also on Facebook, facebook.com slash cbrianjones. And let me know what you think about the ships. Also, the Trek Collective has an awesome index of all these ships. I'll put a link in the show notes, but if you go over to thetrekcollective.com and search for official Starships collection, it will come up. And they actually have every issue and they have some details about every issue as well as images. Very nice little resource they put together there. Moving on, the next story. When John Byrne first revealed his project to create photo comics using images sourced from the original series, it was hard to imagine how exactly this would work. I was skeptical of it myself. My co-host on Literary Treks, Matthew Rushing, was also skeptical of it because a similar idea was tried in the 1970s without success. But if anyone in the comic world could pull it off, it's John Byrne. And the success of the first volume led to an ongoing series with IDW, and the result has been rich, engaging stories and unique visuals. Matthew and I have been really impressed with what he's done after being skeptical going in. Now in his forums, Byrne drops hints at the future direction of new visions. Now, this was reported by the Trek Collective as well, and Byrne dropped the following hints. 
He said, so far, with seven stories complete and an eighth started, I had two direct sequels, one follow-up that is not strictly a sequel, two returning characters in the same story, again, not a sequel. Two of the stories presently in the planning stages contain elements from previous episodes, but are again, not direct sequels. He also posted an intriguing panel from issue number four. And about this image, he said, here's a little sneak peek at something from the finished lead story for the fourth issue, a combination of modeling and heavily manipulated location shooting. This is what's really interesting, especially as the series goes on and on. He's taking screen stills and elements of screen stills from episodes of the original series, but he's getting more and more into heavy Photoshop manipulation and compositing to create new environments and new scenes. And in this image that he has shared, the first thing that pops into my head is Devil in the Dark. It feels like what the underground chambers and facilities would have looked like if they had more resources to actually build out sets or if they had had CGI at the time, more than just the matte paintings. But I don't know if that's where he's going with this or not. It could be something completely different. But that's the first thing that popped into my head. It's a really unique environment that I don't really recognize from any original series episode. He has two figures walking into the scene, but to save a surprise for us, he's blurred out their heads and their bodies are just in silhouette. They're black. So you can't tell if they're Starfleet uniforms, if there's something else. They look like Starfleet uniforms because of the the way that the legs are coming down above the boots, but I don't know for sure. And there's no color, so you don't know if they're Starfleet divisional uniforms or if these are miners or what they are. It's very interesting to see. I'll put a link in the show notes to the story over on the Trek Collective so you can go look at the image and also find out a little bit more about what's going on. This article also has some other stuff in it about the city on the edge of forever, which we talked about yesterday a little bit, and uh, some other things that are coming up as well. And I'd like to know if you've read the New Vision comics, and if you have, what do you think of them? Do you agree with Matthew and me that they're unique, but the stories are engaging as well? Or do you think it's just a weird concept and it's not really your cup of tea? Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. Again, you'll find me on Twitter, C. Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. Now, yesterday I mentioned that I have received some lengthy feedback that I wanted to share with you, but I didn't have it ready for yesterday's show. There are actually a few pieces, and here is one of them. This is from listener Rebecca Skipper. And she writes, in response to Hyper Channel 48, A Transformed World, where I talked about that study that predicted what the world would be like in the year 2025. Rebecca writes, thank you for a thought-provoking discussion. Frankly, if we had transporters right now or the ability to use time travel, I'd gladly leave this planet and try to live in the TNG era. However, getting back to reality... I think the article you quoted is hopeful, even as some of its predictions may not come true in 15 years. I'd rather see us using solar and wind energy, but politicians are dependent on big oil, and some of us are greedy. 
So unfortunately, we are likely to see the smart appliances first. But just give me a simple dishwasher any day. Rebecca, I have to agree with you on that one. That's one reason that I am very skeptical. I feel like we have the technology right now to generate significant amounts of energy beyond what we are doing from solar and wind. But there's no motivation for energy companies to do this. You see commercials and they talk about it, but I really feel like these big energy companies are simply using solar and wind as a marketing tactic. They're just trying to give us the impression that they care about these technologies and that they care about the future so that we will continue to support their brands. If they really, really, truly cared about these things, they would put a lot more resources into this and really work from their position as the energy providers to wean us off of oil and fossil fuels. But they don't because that's where the money is. And it's not just politicians. I mean, it's, it's business and politics both. There's just too much there with traditional energy sources, with gas and coal and oil, for them to really seriously turn their attention to solar and wind and other alternate energy sources that maybe we haven't even thought about yet. The technology is there. We can do it. We can develop these things. But there has to be motivation, and and it's not there yet. So I agree with you on that. Rebecca goes on to say, Now, since I'm blind, I love the idea of self-driving cars connected to a grid, but I'd much rather see more research in making public transit more reliable and accessible. And again, that's really important as well. I think that depends on where you live. So for me in Japan, we have a great public transportation system. If I don't want to drive, I don't have to drive. I can go almost anywhere I want to go by train, by bus, primarily train. I can then use a bus to get to places that are far away from the train station. Or I can use my feet, which is what we do here often. Just walk. You don't need to get in a car and drive everywhere. Now, I know in countries like the United States, you kind of do need to get in a car and drive places because the distances are too wide for you to walk around and and really go places on foot unless you live in a city like New York or San Francisco, somewhere like that. So I agree, Rebecca. I would like to see public transit be more reliable and more accessible. So that that is something that needs to be addressed. She says, of course, the transporter is better than all of these. And I agree with that too, unless it kills you first in order to move you somewhere else, which might be what it does. But we won't worry about that right now. It would be great to be able to just beam somewhere. Rebecca goes on to say, hyperconnectivity troubles me not because of the technologies, but because of how it may be abused. Sometimes you just need to turn off these devices. I get so annoyed when my family starts texting, when we are playing a game or eating. The internet and computers are my life, but I set boundaries for myself. I don't like touch screens. I think we should prioritize the technologies that will do the most good for the most people. 
such as reliable broadband, more advances in medicine, and using alternative energy. Absolutely. And I I think I probably ranted about broadband in that show. Broadband is terrible in many parts of the world, including the United States, which has a very antiquated infrastructure for communications and technology. I, I watch a lot of technology shows. And I listen to a lot of technology podcasts and the hosts who are based in the U.S. get really, really excited about broadband of like 20 or 30 or 50 megabits per second. And that is very far behind what's happening elsewhere in the world. And it really, really needs to be addressed because, and I don't say this because I'm trying to rag on the U.S. or anything like this. I'm actually concerned because I think the world is a better place when the United States is able to lead and provide assistance and technology and and help others. And I don't mean through intervention. I mean through more of like just supporting others to help the world as a whole advance technologically and move forward, which is something that the U.S. has been able to do in the past, but is increasingly unable to do for various reasons, which I won't go into here. But what concerns me when it comes to broadband is that broadband is absolutely essential to business, which is essential to the economy, which is essential to the health of the United States and its ability to continue to play an important role in the world. And because there seems to be no willingness in the United States to address the problem of internet service and broadband. And in fact, there seems to be a movement in a direction that will make it even more difficult for this problem to be solved. It really concerns me because I'm afraid the U.S. is going to wake up one day in the very near future and find that its internet infrastructure is so antiquated and behind the rest of the world that they won't be able to catch up. I'd like to see it addressed right now. And that's where my issue with that article was that I think that they're kind of looking at the future through rose-colored glasses. It's not going to happen by 2025 if something doesn't change. So there's my, my continued rant about broadband. All right. Let's go on with Rebecca's comments here. She says, we will only see change if we begin individually at the local level. If something is successful locally, then someone might take notice and other communities may take interest. I used to believe that you could work from the top down, but now I believe otherwise. In my view, our world will only improve when we take initiative in small ways, locally or individually. I agree with Rebecca on that we do need to take initiative on our own. I differ a bit in whether or not we can truly make a difference on an individual level. I think we should try. But my rant about broadband a moment ago is that I actually think that's something that can only change from the top down. I don't think that can change from an individual level up because it has we, we can't individually lay fiber optics across the North American continent. The only people that can do that are big companies like Charter and Comcast 
or the government. And I actually think the government needs to do it. And it's an unpopular view in the U.S. because people don't want the government to be involved in that. But you should remember that the interstate system, which makes America possible, wouldn't exist if it had been left up to companies like Comcast or Charter, their equivalents in the area of constructing roadways to build it. It took more initiative from above to make it happen. I think that needs to happen with broadband. So I think it's a mix of top to bottom and bottom to top, where we need to push that initiative from the local level and as individuals, but we're also going to need people at the top to actually put it into motion and make it happen. All right, closing out, Rebecca said, sometimes the best thing about the internet is the ability to choose our own communities. The challenge for me is to interact with the people next door or in my city. I like the virtual world better than the physical world, so I'd never leave the holodeck. I relate to Barclay. The challenge now is to get away from the computer and build common ground with people in our communities. Then maybe we will see some of those advances taken for granted by our friends in the 24th century. Thanks again for your thoughtful commentary. Well, Rebecca, thank you for your thoughtful feedback on this. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that what I talked about connected with you and I hope it connected with others as well. I know it's not directly connected to Star Trek, but these things are important for making the Star Trek future a reality. And so I think it is important to talk about them from time to time. Now, if you would like to send me feedback, just as Rebecca did, I would love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter. My username is C Brian Jones, the letter C and Brian with a Y. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. You can also find the network on Twitter. Our username is TrekFM. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash TrekFM. On Google Plus, we have a community. Just search G Plus for communities and you'll find us there. We also have forums at trek.fm slash forums. You can send me a voicemail through the website. Look for that in the sidebar, or you can use our contact form, trek.fm slash contact, to send me a message that will come to me by email. Now, I don't have any new shows for you today because Commentary Trek Stars, which normally drops on Friday, had an early release this week. We actually put it out on Monday. If you haven't heard it yet, be sure to catch Mike and Max's interview with Star Trek 2016, or as the media likes to call it, Star Trek 3. Writers J.D. Payne and Patrick McKay, the two new writers who will be pinning the story for the next film, are on the show with Mike and Max for over an hour, so you can hear directly from them in their own voices, which I personally think is a much better way to learn about them and to get to know them than just interviews in writing. So be sure to check this out on Commentary Trek Stars. A new episode of Warp 5 is on its way to you. It's a very late Friday release this week, so it's not in your feeds yet. I will hopefully be able to tell you about it tomorrow and get that show out there for you. If you're looking for Enterprise Talk today, though, be sure to check out last week's episode of Warp 5, which was all about the Vulcans, and also the current episode of The Ready Room, in which we discuss the communicator. You can get all of these episodes in your individual show feeds and in the Trek of Film Complete Master Feed. And remember, you can get those everywhere you get your podcasts and also you can stream from our website. Well, that's everything for today. I'm sorry it was a bit of a longer hyper channel than usual, but I did want to share Rebecca's feedback with you and share my thoughts on that. 
a little bit more. Let me know what you think about those ships that we talked about. Let me know what you think about John Byrne's new vision comics as well. And I'll be back tomorrow with some more stories for you. Hope you have a great holiday and find some time to go watch some Trek. <laughs>